Give us one hour and we'll help you change the way you think about happiness. Harvesting happiness with Lisa Cypress Kamen is fresh, optimistic, and purpose-driven talk radio that promotes happiness from the inside out. Each week, Lisa spotlights trendsetters and change agents who offer sound emotional fitness tips for improving mental muscle tone and greater well-being. Guest experts include a diverse and proactive collection of the greatest thinkers and doers who are devoting their lives to creating a better world in which to live. Your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen, is a widely recognized applied positive psychology coach, author, documentary filmmaker, and lecturer specializing in the fields of sustainable happiness, mindfulness, and positive lifestyle management. Let's get to it. Here's Lisa. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are. Welcome to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio, broadcasting consciously prepared brain food from the beaches of Malibu, California. Each week, we explore the very serious business of happiness, sustainable well-being, and human flourishing. We are not talking about that annoying yellow smiley face. No, no, no. We are talking about something much deeper and critical to the success of humanity. Authentic happiness is not selfish, egotistical, or narcissistic. In fact, it is essential in order for humankind to thrive. Sustainable happiness is important because it not only elevates our own well-being locally, but also contributes to collective global flourishing. The achievement of a happy life is not only positively good for us, it is constructively good for those around us. In short, happiness matters. Happiness comes from the heart, and this show is most definitely all about the heart. Today we're talking about the American landscape, actually. We are all from somewhere else. I don't care where you come from. None of us is really indigenous to America except a precious few. And specifically, we're talking about what it is like to be Muslim in America. And my guest has written a book, How to Be a Muslim, an American Story. Harun Mogul is a commentator and broadcaster who wishes he could just be a writer. He is a senior fellow and director of development at the Center for Global Policy and the Muslim Leadership Initiative facilitator at the Shalom Hartman Institute. Harun has appeared on all major media networks, and his essays and reviews have been published at The Washington Post, Time, CNN, Guardian, Foreign Policy, Hararetz, among others. He is the author of several books, and we're talking about his newest one, How to Be a Muslim, an American Story. Welcome, Harun. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Oh, it is a pleasure. This conversation is one that I hope is the beginning of many, because I think there is a gross misunderstanding of, A, what is it What is it like to be a Muslim? What is Islam? And I think it's really necessary to have the conversation and let people know uh, from your perspective and, and to have a greater understanding of Islam in general. Absolutely. I think uh, it's, it's unfortunately been the case pretty much for the last 16 years now, since 9-11, that uh, Islam has been at the center of a lot of our national conversations. And we seem to be at a point now where what you think about Islam determines a lot of what you think about the world. But unfortunately, the actual stories of Muslims in America usually go unheard. And some of that is because uh, many Muslims are pretty recently arrived, not all of them, but, but many of them. And also because there's so few of us. We live in a huge country, well over 300 million people, and only 1% of the American population is Muslim, which means that probably most people will hear about Islam on the news, uh, in political debates, but they may never actually meet a Muslim. Yeah. What was it like growing up as a second-generation immigrant? Because you, you, your family hails from Pakistan, I believe. Yeah, yeah. They came in the early 70s. And uh, I grew up in New England, uh, between Massachusetts and Connecticut, in a very small town. Uh, I think there was about four, less than 400 people in my high school. Uh, everybody knew who I was because I was the kid with a weird name. And, uh, <laughs> you know, that has advantages and disadvantages, uh, depending on whether or not you want to sneak out uh, and make sure your parents don't know. Because uh, in a small town, uh, everybody knows what you're doing at, at I guess, any point. 
And uh, it was, you know, it, it was tough in some ways, but I, I shouldn't overestimate that. I, I think one of the advantages of, of growing up in New England is that it's a very open and welcome place. I think nobody really knew what I was uh, and really didn't have any context for trying to understand who, who I was religiously or culturally, but everyone was very welcoming and very friendly. And this is one snapshot, you know, winding back the clock uh, a couple of decades or more, because I'm not going to talk about your age, but the, but the, the, and then you fast forward to the world that we are all living in today, in Trump's America, which is a very different place. Absolutely. I think that that's felt for a lot of people like a kind of whiplash. And one of the things that often occurs to me is, when you come of age really determines what you think about the world and how you process the, the events around you and, and maybe even what you think is possible. So when I was growing up, I mean, I think my first political memories are of the Clinton administration. So not to age myself, but uh, that was kind of the default for better and worse. That kind of felt like what America could be or was supposed to be. And, you know, there, there's definitely people who came of age under Obama and they're understanding of America must be very, very different than for most other people who grew up in different time periods to have, you know, a president who's half black. His father was Muslim. Uh, his father was from Kenya. He's a recent immigrant, uh, a guy with a funny name who comes out of nowhere and, and ends up winning two elections. And then there's people who I think are going to have a, a really disheartening view of America because they're going to come of age under a Trump presidency. And that's going to be their their barometer for for what's normal. What's interesting to me is when you, you know, just describe Obama, to me that is America. I mean, that's that's the America that I that I know that I grew up in and then I look at um the America that uh, that children are going to come of age into now and it's a it's a throwback to a time that many of us thought that we had evolved from, not back into. Yeah, I hope I hope it's an aberration. It, it's interesting that uh, the the feeling of of being rocketed backwards is one I hear described a lot. And I was of the opinion that uh, this was a more dangerous candidacy than I think people uh, originally gave him credit for. And now we're all trying to make sense of what happened. And <laughs> for a lot of folks, it's it's not just generally disappointing it's personally overwhelming even scary yes i i I agree with you and i i have a son who is coming of age he's going to be 18 and never did i think in a million years that i would ever be concerned about him going to war yeah until now yeah i I mean i don't uh you know i don't uh i don't quite know how people we're raising kids have to deal with the president because you don't, I guess you never think that the probably the, the most powerful person in the world is someone whose behavior you have to explain away on a daily basis. Yeah. Okay what not to do. <laughs> yeah. The, pre- the president can do it, but you can't do it. Right. Uh, it's sort of a weird conversation to have. Or, or it's the what not to do. You know, if you want to give uh, the young people in your life a, 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 a lesson in ethics and, and behavior, maybe you use that as, as the as the role model of what not to do. It's a good warning. Right? So, you know, remember, if you do this, you'll be just like the president. Maybe that's enough to, to dissuade a lot of folks from from doing certain things. Let's talk about um, the shift that happened. You mentioned that um, from 9-11 forward, that your life as a Muslim in America um, was very, very different. And, and I would love for you to talk about that experience. You know, you, you, you spoke of being raised in a very small town in New England, you know, uh, 400 people and kind of everybody knew what you were doing and in your business is what happens in small towns. Um, and then 9-11 happens. And as you start to come of age and move about the country um, as a young man, how did that affect you? One of the things that always surprises audiences when I talk about uh, Islam in America and Islamophobia, about anti-Muslim sentiment in the country, is that uh, actually Islamophobia has been getting worse uh, the farther you move away from 9-11. So anti-Muslim hate crimes, bias incidents, discriminatory language and rhetoric, even just opinion polls on what people think of Muslims 
generally have gotten have gone downhill in the last five or six years. And I mean, rationally, you would think that around 9-11, you'd have the worst opinions and perspectives. And the further we move away from there, the better things would be or the more balanced things would be. And part of the reason is because being Muslim has become kind of a political football. Actually, I, I think there was a I might screw it up, but there was a, a political survey done that uh, a person's answer to whether or not they thought Barack Obama was Muslim was the greatest predictor of how they would vote in uh, in the 2016 elections. So if you thought Obama was a Muslim, you were almost certainly going to go for Trump. And if you didn't think he was a Muslim, you're almost certain to go for Hillary Clinton. So it's it's a really weird place to be in when your religious identity becomes um, the, the metric on which people end up voting uh, and, and not in a positive way. So I think for a lot of people, uh, it, it's a weird feeling of, you know, why, why is it getting worse now? And what are we supposed to do about this? And I think the most disheartening uh, aspect of all of this is that had Hillary Clinton won, we would be having a completely different conversation. And the conversation you have in Muslim communities right now is, I mean, there's positives and negatives, and, and we can talk about the positives too. But one of the negatives is uh, this feeling that we're going to be dealing with this for a very long time. Maybe the rest of our lives will be just figuring out a way to get over this kind of perception of Muslims and Islam. Well, you know, uh, I, I think what you the point you raise is so important. Last week in Portland, Oregon, which is, um, in my view, and probably many people's view, a very, very liberal city, there was uh, a stabbing on or a couple of stabbings on the light rail of uh, a man who uh, was really after Muslim women. And yeah. we can we're going to go to a break and we can get into that when we return, because I think that that, that the problem is pervasive and um, the answer is something very different than politics. Um, and I know you and I can talk about that after the break, but I, I'm a little dumbfounded because I, I, I'm a Jewish woman and I came from a lineage that actually went through the very same thing. Um decades and decades and decades ago. And so the fact is history is repeating itself and we're not paying attention. And I think that's that's what has me most alarmed. We're going to go to a break. And when we come back, we're going to carry on the discussion with Harun Mogul about his new book, How to Be a Muslim, an American Story. To learn more or to connect with him, please visit him on Twitter at hsmogul. And that's M-O-G-H-U-L. And on Facebook, H.S. Mogul. Here come the tunes. We'll be right back. Before we take off for that break, I want to mention the power of a beautiful smile. We all know that happiness is contagious and so is a dazzling grin. And that's why I'm giving my mouth a dental tune-up with Smile Direct Club Invisible Aligners that are gently straightening and brightening my pearly whites at an affordable price. I'm enjoying the easy process that's working while I work play, and sleep. Smile Direct Club costs 70% less than other invisible aligners or braces that average more than $5,000. And you could save even more because many dental insurance plans reimburse customers for a portion of the cost of invisible aligners. And Smile Direct Club also accepts FSAs. Smile Direct Club's pricing is simple a single payment of $1,850 that waives all lab costs or take advantage of Smile Pay and spread your payments of $95 a month over 22 months. No credit check required. Listeners of this show will receive 50% off an in-home impression kit that normally sells for $95. And that's 100% covered by their Smile Guarantee. So if aligners aren't a good fit for you, you get your money back. Smile Direct Club's mission is straight to the point, making it clear and convenient to transform your smile no matter where you live. Your new smile is waiting at SmileDirectClub.com. And be sure to use my unique promo code of happiness at checkout. Offer is not available in North Carolina. Once again, that's SmileDirectClub.com. And don't forget to use the promo code happiness to save 50% off your in-home impression kit today. Here comes the break. We'll be right back. And that's a promise. We know that life can be tough and that happiness can and does live alongside adversity. Connect with us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and follow Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen for a daily dose of inspiration. We'll be right back after this quick break. 
Do you find yourself saying things like, I'll be happy when, or I'll be happy if? Does the finish line for happiness keep moving? Does the bar keep getting higher? What's getting in the way of your happiness right now? Too much going on? Working too much? Not working enough? Having too many responsibilities? Not having enough money, enough time, enough space? The list goes on and on. It becomes difficult to see all that we have if we focus on scarcity. One thing I know for certain, happiness waits for no one. And sometimes we all need support. Are We Happy Yet? is not another self-help book. It's a guidebook for learning how to harvest happiness through self-mastery, which is the key ingredient into building resilience, hardiness, grit, and emotional stability. Are We Happy Yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Each day we get to choose how we are going to show up for life. And at times we need tips for strengthening our well-being. Learn training strategies for greater emotional fitness and improved mental muscle tone at HarvestingHappiness.com. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. If you're just joining us now, we are having a really important conversation about the American landscape, what it means to be Muslim in America with author, commentator, and broadcaster Haroon Mogul. We're talking about his new book, How to Be a Muslim, an American Story. Haroon, um, before the break, we were talking about history repeating itself. You and I are sitting here talking. You're a Muslim. I'm a Jew. Um, being Jewish in America, um, Jews went through a very similar thing um, decades ago, and we have this history repeating itself where the view that America is the melting pot, a place of, of tolerance, a place to pursue the great dream, and if you work hard, you get. And this is now, I think, under, under fire, the very thing that America has been founded upon. I, I don't disagree with you. Uh, one thing, though, that, that gives me a lot of hope is the, the courage with which people have, have pushed back and refused to be cowed. So you mentioned the attacks in Portland, and these three men came to the aid of these two Muslim women who were being braided and, and harassed by uh, someone who turns out to be a white supremacist. And, and these three, three men, complete strangers to each other and to these women, uh, got in his way and, and they were attacked. Uh, all of them were stabbed. Two of them died. One of them is in the hospital with, with pretty severe wounds. And, you know, of the two who died... Uh, one was a young man uh, in, in his 20s, and the other was an Iraq war veteran. And it really is something that he went all the way to Iraq to, to fight. And he comes back here and he loses his life defending two Muslim women, uh, which is a pretty remarkable story. And yeah. it, it gets to a fact that a lot of people are often surprised by, which is that in the United States today, you're more likely to be killed because you're Muslim or you're confused for a Muslim than you are to be killed by a Muslim. And so we have this uh, pervasive fear of terrorism, which although it's a real problem, I think it's exaggerated. And then there's there's the reality of, of bias and bigotry that turns violent. But, you know, again, the, the heartening thing is to see people stand up. And, and probably the moment that most moved me as an American in the last few months was after Donald Trump announced the travel ban. And I remember I was sitting in New York City thinking, here, here it comes. It's beginning. It's, it's, I mean, his presidency has just started and, and we're already talking about banning people on the basis of their religion. And people showed up at JFK and other airports in huge numbers, in many cases spontaneously. And pretty soon you had thousands of people at airports all over the country from, from smaller airports to the biggest ones, all protesting. And that action helped to I think give a lot of courage and momentum to the attempt by courts successful so far to block the ban. And that's a pretty remarkable thing about America. You're right that, that we are seeing dangerous echoes of things that happened before. But I think that because there's so many people in America who remember what happened before, uh, they're not going to let it happen on their watch. Yeah. And, 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 and I think that really speaks to what is driving all of this in that is the fear of the unknown, or because I don't know what it really means to be a Muslim, or I don't understand you, or those bad guys somewhere over there, or on or on September 11th, 
were the ones that committed these crimes. Therefore, um, that that must be you. So that's ignorance. That's fear. It's a lack of awareness and consciousness. And, and, and those who did step up to the plate to protest this ridiculous ban um, um, do give hope and do give fuel, actually. And and the the one thing we find over and over again, and I think it's very relevant to, I mean, the the, the values you talk about in the show, is that the, the greatest predictor for whether or not you hold uh, biased or stereotyped views of a population is whether or not you know someone from that population. And I don't mean this cursory, uh, I know someone because I saw them on TV, but actual deep human relationships where you get to a point where you know someone, you respect someone, you trust them, and you are able to see the world through their eyes. Those kinds of deep relationships are the greatest predictors of whether or not you would fall for a stereotypical view. And one of the challenges, of course, is that the Muslim population in the United States is really small. But the more likely a person is to know a Muslim, the less likely they are to hold anti-Muslim views. And, and I think that holds across the board, right? When you, If you know someone who's Jewish, as, as opposed to if you don't, it's a lot harder to then swallow a stereotype view and then reproduce it and regurgitate it. You know, it's funny you should mention that. Many, many years ago, I had gone to a program in Norman, Oklahoma. It's a pretty small place. And um, uh, there were a gathering of people, and it happened to have been during Passover, and it was a Seventh-day Adventist program that I was involved in. And so they had done, they had allowed myself and my husband at the time the opportunity to, to present a little Seder for people. And overwhelmingly, the people, there were no other Jews there, said, you know, we were raised to believe that Jews have horns. Now, this wasn't that long ago, 20 years ago. And you're not that person. And that just like stuck in my mind, which really speaks to the point that you're trying to make, you know, that when you know somebody, when you're connected, when you have kindness and compassion and empathy towards the other, which in, in, in my view is the, is the fix, right? That is the, the salve that will heal this. It's impossible to hate. Absolutely. And, and, you know, you mentioned the, the work you, you do and, and the Passover Seder. So I work for Shalom Hartman Institute, which is a Jewish educational institution. And, Part of how I got to a point where I could do that is the story I tell in my book, which everyone should totally buy. Yes, uh, everybody, wait, but... let me give the plug. Let me do it for you. <laughs> the book is How to Be a Muslim, an American Story, and you should go out and buy it right away. <laughs> right, like right now. Um, right we'll now. We'll pause the show until you do. <laughs> um, so, you know, I, it, it's interesting. I think five years ago, I never would have imagined myself uh, in a place where I would work for uh, an institution headquartered in Israel. And... One of the reasons I got there is because we, we did this religious learning program and engagement program. And I realized that and, you know, I had had relationships. I live in New York City and, and it's an incredibly diverse city. And I I'm used to being around different types of people, but I never had deep relationships uh, with Israelis or with American Jews who identify strongly with Israel. And we had some very profound differences and we still have profound differences. But we got to a point where we could respect and deeply appreciate each other. Because we knew that although we had different political views, that the values underlying those views were the same. We came to different conclusions, but we were coming from the same place. So we chose to value the place over the conclusion. And again, I mean, that's me as someone who is, you know, the child of immigrants, who's Muslim and brown and, and living in New York City for the better part of the last 18 years. And yet I had never had relationships with this community that is such a, such a, vibrant part of the New York City landscape. And so, uh, again, these relationships are not easy to cultivate, even for people who want them. Where are you supposed to go to find a Muslim in most of America? <laughs> you could run a personal ad, like looking for a few good Muslims to become friends with. <laughs> I think that would, be, that would be actually pretty cool. Um, it would be. <laughs> there's a series there. There's, a, I mean, there were people who did these like hug a Muslim kind of things, like you can come and hug a Muslim kind of events and things like that, which are kind of funny, but, and they're kind of cute, but I, I get the point, which is that, you know, how do you, how do you challenge the stereotypes if you have no one to turn to who can help you do that? Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about the mythology about Muslim Americans, you know, because I, the, I, I think there is a story that somebody who's sitting right smack in the middle of, of our country here is, is telling him or herself that needs to be clarified, shall we say? 
Yeah, you know, and and uh, and I'll say that I've, you know, in fairness, I've I've heard the same story from people in from small towns to big cities. So I, I don't think it's just. I, I think it's a bigger problem sometimes, where it's easy to fall for. Well, this is what I heard on the news. This is my what you must be. I remember um, I was sitting down at a dinner table uh, around some very educated cosmopolitan folks in Seattle, which, like you said, like Portland is a very liberal city. And people expressed astonishment that my mom was a doctor and, <laughs> oh my you know, like, like they couldn't possibly They're like, Oh, she was educated. And I was like, yeah. And then they were like, what does your wife do? And I'm like, Oh, she works for an immigration law firm. And they were like, wow, she's like, she's educated. And I was like, I like, I'm a writer. Why would I marry someone who was like, doesn't make, you know, I mean, like, what, who do you think I am is kind of the question that, that occurred to me. And I, you know, I think there's a lot of stereotypes and, and where to begin is, you know, is the simple fact that, you know, for, for most American Muslims are, are one of two pe- two types of people. They're either African-American, and those are probably the Muslims most Americans know best, even if they don't realize they're Muslim. So Muhammad Ali, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, uh, Dave Chappelle, possibly Barack Obama, we're not entirely sure. But there's a huge percentage of American Muslims are African-American. That was a joke by Obama, by the way. Um, <laughs> just he's actually secretly Muslim, and I'm, I, I, like, let the secret out. Um here it is. Oh my gosh. It's going to really Actually, help our show. Thanks for that. I mean, it could be, you get some interesting traffic. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, and, and that's the, that's the funny thing. So even Donald Trump at one point when he responded to Obama's speech in a mosque in Baltimore, uh, way back last February, he, you know, Obama said that Muslims are athletes and celebrities and Donald Trump said, who are you even talking about? And then a few months later when Muhammad Ali dies, uh, Donald Trump tweets out, uh, a, a kind of brief eulogy for him. So people don't even realize sometimes that some of the people they're watching are Muslim or identify as Muslim in some way. And then a lot of Muslims are, are immigrants or recent immigrants. And so we are the most ethnically diverse religious community in the United States. And American Muslims are the most ethnically diverse Muslim nationality in the world. Uh, we're well, a tiny little drop out of a huge population all over the world, and we're a tiny little drop in the United States, but we're an incredibly diverse community, which is what makes it really hard uh, for American Muslims to sometimes speak up and speak out, because they're a recently arrived community that's still trying to get their footing in the United States, uh, or they're a community that, because they're African American, they get overlooked or, or ignored. And I think the hardest part of being Muslim as a result is that it's kind of like a one-two punch right now. So there's there's anti-black sentiment and anti-Muslim sentiment. So if you're a black Muslim, you kind of get hit in two ways. And then there's anti-immigrant sentiment, there's anti-Muslim sentiment. So if you're a Muslim who's of immigrant origin, uh, as in, you know, probably arrived in the last 30 or 40 years, uh, then you're getting hit twice, right? Where you're getting hit because you're an immigrant, and you're getting hit because you're a Muslim. So all these things produce a lot of anxiety, which you know, one of the reasons people always say, well, why aren't there more Muslims speaking out? The fact is they do speak out, but because we're a young community, we're not as sophisticated. We don't know how to get the message out there. Well, uh, bring your colleagues over here because I, 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 I want to talk to them. I will please, do. Please do. Um, we are out of time, so I, I'm going to invite you back so we can carry on the conversation at another point because this is super important. Listen up, America and beyond. <laughs> you know, and you need to run out and get the book, How to Be a Muslim in American Story, like right now. Now you can hit the pause button and go. And to learn more about Harun Mogul, please uh, connect with him. Just connect with him. He is like one of those Twitter guys at HS Mogul on Facebook, HS Mogul. Harun, thank you so much for starting the conversation that we are going to continue. Thank you for having me on. Thanks. Here come the tunes. We'll be right back. Nothing gives happiness like a free gift. Unwrap your present by signing up for Happiness Headlines, our monthly e-zine at HarvestingHappiness.com. Stay tuned for more after the break. One thing I know for certain, happiness waits for no one, and sometimes we all need support. We all have the freedom to be happy or the liberty to be miserable each day, regardless of external circumstance. Sure, things will inevitably happen in our lives that are out of our control. There is only ever one thing that is totally within our control, ourselves. When we have command of ourselves, we are better prepared to handle life and bounce back more quickly when challenges arise. Whether you see the glass as half empty or half full, 
The glass has the capacity to hold more. You have the capacity to be happier. The tool to harvesting your happiness is within your grasp. Are we happy yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Each day we get to choose how we are going to show up for life. And at times we need tips for strengthening our well-being. Learn training strategies for greater emotional fitness and improved mental muscle tone at HarvestingHappiness.com. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. If you're just joining us now, I urge you to download and share this podcast. Why? Because sharing is caring. And we're talking about something that I believe to be very important, not only for us as Americans, but for the world to have an open conversation about. And that is, what does it mean to be Muslim? Fact versus misconceptions about Islam. And my next guest is a scholar and co-author of the book, Who Speaks for Islam? What a Billion Muslims Really Think. Dalia Mbogahed is the director of research at the Institute for Social Policy and Understanding, where she leads the organization's pioneering research and thought leadership programs on American Muslims. President Barack Obama appointed Mogahed to the President's Advisory Council on Faith-Based and Neighborhood Partnerships in 2009. She was invited to testify before the U.S. Senate Committee on Foreign Relations about U.S. engagement with Muslim communities. Her 2016 TED Talk was named one of the top TED Talks that year. She's also the CEO of Mogahed Consulting, and I'm delighted to have her with me here today. Hi, Dahlia. Hi, Lisa. It's such a pleasure to be here. It is a great pleasure. And we realized in chatting before the show that we have met many years ago when you were at the Gallup organization. Yes, and I, I remember that. It was a really great conversation. I remember uh, at, during the Positive Psychology Conference, I believe. Yes, a long time ago. And things have changed. The world has changed. And that's the conversation I think that we're going to jump into. Um, let's talk a little bit about the book, Who Speaks for Islam, because it was published many years ago, still very relevant today. And some of the statistics that you write about are valid, current, but may be different as evolution has occurred. Yes, I, I think so. The, the book um, was the product of the largest study ever done on Muslims around the world. And we also polled Americans on their thoughts about Muslims. And you're right, it was, uh, it was, it came out in 2008. And so a lot has changed. But sadly, a lot has also not changed. And uh, I think that that's um, something we'll be talking more about. Let's just jump into Islamophobia and why that really is the ultimate threat, that that is terrorism in itself. Well, I think that, you know, Islamophobia or um, an irrational fear of Muslims and Islam or, or a bigotry toward Muslims is something we usually talk about as a threat or as something that Muslims are uh, the ultimate victims of. And, of course, Muslims are the first victims. But the point I always make is that Islamophobia is, in fact, a threat to every American. And it's a it's maybe counterintuitive, not an obvious point why, but when there is a narrative of fear that we're um, that we're constantly being exposed to, that we're constantly consuming, that gets in the way of our critical thinking. That gets in the way of objective decision making. In fact, it even gets in the way of our happiness. And so while Muslims do face discrimination and in some cases even hate crimes and violence because of Islamophobia, it actually impacts every American because it uh, it opens the door for other kinds of bigotry and normalizes bigotry, not just for Muslims, but against black people, against Jews, against the LGBTQ community. But it also makes us afraid. And when we are afraid we are more likely to accept conformity, we're more likely to accept authoritarianism, and we're more likely to just be prejudiced, which leads to bad decisions. And not only that, it is the great separator of humanity. So if I see myself separate from you, 
right? I'm disconnecting mm-hmm. myself really from a part of humanity. Absolutely. It, it, it deprives of, it deprives us of, um, greater connection, greater, um, really greater integration as a human family. Um, and it also deprives of, deprives us of, of relationships that we might otherwise pursue that could be very enriching to our lives. And when we talk about Islam um, and, and the quantity of Muslims in the world, I mean, at, at the time the Gallup study was done, it was more than 1.3 billion. I'm sure that it is uh, the statistics are, are, are growing because it's the fastest growing religion in the world. Um, why are Muslims the silent majority? Well, you know, in the book, we actually talk about um, them not being the silent majority, but being the silenced majority. And they are silenced by a mainstream media that ignores the 99.9999% um, that are going about their lives contributing to society. And they are silenced by violent extremists who tend to usurp the, the limelight. And they're also silenced by Islamophobes who, who seem to agree on everything with the extremists. I mean, it's always really striking to me um, how much they agree. They seem to have the exact same narrative uh, about what Islam is. They echo. They're like a they're like an amplifier for one another. <laughs> So it's not that people are silent. It's that they have been silenced. And what this book does is it gives them back a voice. It, 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 it democratizes this discourse and allows ordinary people to speak for themselves. And when we look to the book, which was based on a six-year or more than six-year study of um, uh, Gallup research, there are some statistics that were quoted back in 2008 that I would like to share uh, with our listeners. And then let's talk about how how they have evolved. Nearly one quarter of Americans, 22%, say they would not want a Muslim as a neighbor. Fewer than half believe that U.S. Muslims are loyal to the United States and 44% say Muslims are too extreme in their religious beliefs. Right. Yes, and, and um, those numbers have, um, have either, either really stayed the same or, or gotten worse because the rhetoric has never, has never been worse, has never been more toxic toward this community. Now, I want to respond to an argument that many people make, um, even though, you know, Lisa, you're not asking me, I, I want to answer a question that I think is on the minds of many people, because I get asked this question all the time. The question is, look, Islamophobia is not irrational. Um, people hate Muslims because Muslims do bad things. And uh, if you want people to stop hating you, then stop doing bad things. And underlying that statement is an assumption, well, several assumptions that, that I want to respond to. First of all, there is the assumption of collective guilt. Mm. I don't have any control over the tiny percentage of people that claim to be Muslim that do horrific things. I cannot, just like you cannot be blamed for everyone who shares your identity and does terrible things. It is, it is the definition of bigotry to collectively blame a community for the actions of criminals among them or criminals that claim to, uh, to share their identity. So collective guilt is, is one of the underlying assumptions in that statement that we need to question. The second, um, the second assumption or the second kind of presumption is that anti-Islamic or anti-Muslim sentiment actually follows real events. I, that's what I used to believe, that when a terrorist uh, attack would happen somewhere in the United States or overseas, then Islamophobia would spike. And what shocked me is when I actually looked at the numbers, it wasn't the case. Huh. Anti-Muslim sentiment does not follow real a 
attacks. It, it actually follows election cycles. Mm. And the run-up to war, not real terrorist attacks. So what this tells us, if we're really objective, is that Islamophobia is manufactured. It is a tool of political manipulation, not the result of, you know, a, a regrettable but understandable response to bad Muslims doing bad things. So I think those are two really important points to keep in mind when when looking at this issue, that collective guilt is wrong morally. It's not something that is, as fair-minded uh, people we would want to subscribe to. And second, in reality, we are being manipulated, and the numbers bear that out. You know, it, it, another example of this, and this may be another way for people to see the situation, is if you speak to a German you know, a younger German person, for example, they will say that ingrained in their education, in their upbringing, is the idea that they have to feel somehow guilty or responsible for the Holocaust, um, during which not just Jews were murdered, but there were a whole slew of other people who were annihilated as well. Right. And that collective consciousness has permeated the generations. Right. And and the Holocaust is an unprecedented um, uh, crime against humanity. Um, we, you know, we we can look at our own history and, and think about the violence that some of, uh, you know, that our government has has perpetrated in the slave trade or the genocide of the Native Americans. But I don't think, you know, putting aside the Holocaust, let's let's come back to America. I, I don't think that descendants of, um, you know, white folks during that time feel any sense that they should be collectively blamed for that. I think they would object to being collectively blamed. And I would agree with them. We cannot bear the sin of someone else. I mean, if you look at numbers in our country, the greatest number of casualties at the hands of terrorists in America are actually at the hands of right-wing extremists, yeah. not so-called jihadists. And yet I would never think, you know, with someone like Dylan Roof, who walked into a black church and shot up and killed nine people and injured many more, and he did it, he said, in defense of the white race. I would never think to expect or to collectively blame all white people for his actions. That would be ludicrous. I would also not even expect my, you know, my next door neighbor who is a white Christian and perhaps even a conservative to tell me and reassure me that she doesn't agree with him or to condemn him. I would assume it. I would assume yeah. it because it's murder and she's a human being I know and she's decent. I think this assumption of innocence, assumption of just basic human decency is something that sometimes as Muslims, we feel we're not afforded by the public. I agree with you. I, 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 I completely agree with you. We're going to need to take a break. And that's why I jumped in and we're going to come oh, back sure. and carry on this really important conversation to learn more about Dahlia Mogahed and to connect with her. Please visit her website at www.ispu.org. On Twitter, you can find her at D Mogahed and on Facebook, uh, uh, edit, edit it right there, Karina. And on Facebook, Mogahed Consulting. Here come the tunes. We'll be right back. And that is a promise. Who says money can't buy happiness? Check out Lisa's new book, Are We Happy Yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life and other fun, fashionable, and inspiring items at shophappyatharvestinghappiness.com. We'll be right back after this quick break. Do you find yourself saying things like, I'll be happy when, or I'll be happy if? Does the finish line for happiness keep moving? Does the bar keep getting higher? What's getting in the way of your happiness right now? Too much going on? Working too much? Not working enough? Having too many responsibilities? Not having enough money, enough time, enough space? The list goes on and on. It becomes difficult to see all that we have if we focus on scarcity. 
one thing I know for certain, happiness waits for no one. And sometimes we all need support. Are We Happy Yet? is not another self-help book. It's a guidebook for learning how to harvest happiness through self-mastery, which is the key ingredient into building resilience, hardiness, grit, and emotional stability. Are We Happy Yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Each day we get to choose how we are going to show up for life. And at times we need tips for strengthening our well-being. Learn training strategies for greater emotional fitness and improved mental muscle tone at HarvestingHappiness.com. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. If you're just joining us now, we're continuing the conversation with Dahlia Mogahed, who is a scholar and director of research at the Institute for Social Policy and Understanding. She's also the co-author of Who Speaks for Islam? What a Billion Muslims Really Think. Dahlia, prior to the break, we really were talking about, you know, blame and um Judgment, I think, specifically towards towards Islam, people who are a, a misunderstanding of both the the culture and the religion. I think that is really part of it. It's it's ignorance, because ignorance is what breeds this this Islamophobia. Lisa, you're so right. Ignorance is a big part of it. Uh, but I, I want to actually I want to share with you a surprise finding from a research uh, study that we did at Gallup, where we looked at people's the public, American public's um, self-reported level of prejudice toward Muslims. So this was all just self-reported. We literally asked people, how much prejudice, if any, do you have toward this group? And we gave them a number of choices. And when it came to Muslims, um, 9% of the American public uh, said they had extreme prejudice. So on a scale of one to five, they picked five. Wow. And um, and one was no prejudice. And there were, you know, about 20 something percent who said no prejudice and the rest fell into the middle. And here's what we found in terms of level of knowledge is people who had a lot of knowledge about Islam. Right. A lot. So they said we know a great deal. They had no prejudice. And people who said they know absolutely nothing about Islam, they couldn't name the the book, the prophet, nothing. They had no idea. They also had no prejudice. It was everyone in the middle who said they knew something or thought they knew something. And why I found that so interesting is because left alone, without, you know, being taught anything negative, people actually don't have prejudice. And I was, and, and in some ways, it's heartening because Americans, kind of without ma- being manipulated, are are pretty fair-minded, tolerant people. But it was this middle group that said, "I know something, or I think I know something," that mm. had that reported the most prejudice. Now, if they knew a great deal, they had taken the time to study, et cetera. Then they also didn't have prejudice. But this middle group is the victim of what is called the Islamophobia industry. It is an actual industry that had access to more than $200 million over the period of five years um, between 2007 and 2013. So this is not an accident. This is not organic. This is a deliberate, documented phenomena where there are organizations and individuals that are literally being funded to churn out hate material. And when people are exposed to that, because many people, in fact, the majority say they don't know a Muslim, they are, um, they're relying on that information to inform them or disinform them. And then when you look at the media, we've also looked at studies on media content and found that over the past several years, between 2015 to 2016, media coverage of Muslims and Islam has been 80 to 90 percent negative. That mm. is astounding. I, I, my question when I look at this data, Lisa, is why isn't there more Islamophobia? I am, I am, I'm amazed at the fact that there isn't. It's not worse. Considering all that people are exposed to, this this toxic 
um, you know, this, this, this toxic environment, climate, and, and, and diet of information uh, or disinformation, misinformation that people are uh, being exposed to every single day. When you talk about the hundreds of millions of dollars that have been spent in, in disinforming society, who is funding this? It's a really good question. There's actually a number of foundations that have been cited. I encourage you to look at a report called Fear Inc. and Fear Inc. 2.0, which which uh, uh, name names and give you exact numbers and show you where the money is coming from. It's all public record. Um, there's another report out of University of California at Berkeley on the Islamophobia industry. And I, I think anyone who's interested should look those two uh, reports up or three reports up and read about it, because this is a threat to our democracy. And, and yes. I mean that very literally. If we are if we are the subjects of a propaganda campaign that is manipulating our choices. So, I mean, for example, Islamophobia spiked in the run up to the Iraq war. In, in, the, in the eve of the Iraq war, the majority of Americans believed that there was a link between 9-11 and Iraq. Oh. And of course, there was not. Factually, of course, there was not. But the majority of Americans had been duped into thinking that. So we, the majority of Americans supported the war at that time based on misinformation. And so we, we were sent into this disastrous war that a few years later, the majority said was a mistake. So this is something that's hurting us as a country when we are not being given factual, objective information so that we can make choices about our public policy in a free society. And when we talk about fear killing freedom, which which you mentioned in, in the other segment, fear also robs us of our power. Absolutely. It's the True most power. Absolutely. It's the most disempowering thing we have. Fear makes us so malleable to suggestions, so open to authoritarianism. We we gladly um, relinquish our power when we are afraid, and and that's why it's so dangerous. When we talk about um, the majority of the Muslim world, who are great people. Why is there not enough of a voice coming from Islam to say, no, 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 wait a minute, this is wrong? Well, Lisa, you know, I, I love your question um, because it gives me a chance to, to tell your audience how, how much uh, is being screamed out from every hilltop as to, uh, no, no, this is wrong. Um, I once made a list of all the ways that Muslims have used to condemn terrorism and, and say that it is against Islam. And I, I think I counted at least 30 different ways. Um, everything from literally tens of thousands of press releases to taking out full page ads, to holding rallies, to starting organizations, to dedicated Facebook groups, to, you know, uh, uh, creating um, uh, TV shows about it, to creating video games uh, about uh, the, uh, the, 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 uh, the, you know, the horrific um, nature of terrorism, to songs, to, um, you know, cartoons. It, it, there is not a method that is out there that Muslims have not tried to communicate this point. Now, the question is two things. Why aren't people hearing it? Yeah, that's what and, I'm thinking. Why, right? why aren't we hearing it? Why aren't we hearing it? And the second question, and I go back to this issue, is why do we need to hear it? And, and I mean that. And I think we have to go deeper now and, and ask that. And I get it. I, I see these terrible images on TV and I, and I cringe. But as, as a person who um, also observes other people being horrible from other other parts, you know, uh, other, other cultural backgrounds and religions, I truly don't need to be reassured 
by my white Christian neighbor. I truly don't need to be reassured by my Catholic neighbor. I assume, I assume that if innocent women and children and, and, and civilians are being targeted and killed, that a decent human being would condemn it. You know, I, I'm a mom. I'm a uh, professional. I, I love coffee. I, I'm a human <laughs> being, right? <laughs> and yeah. for someone to need me to reassure them that I'm not okay with the killing of innocent people, I find deeply offensive. I truly do. What, what, what I, and I, and I acknowledge that. And I think what I meant is why aren't we hearing more of the voice, not, ex, not trying to justify the actions or look at me, I'm okay. Um, you know, you need to accept me, but why aren't we hearing more of the, the, the Muslim voice? Like the propaganda is wrong. Yeah. That's, that's, that, I think that's really more the question. I mean, I, I mean, I make the, the, the assumption that everybody's good. I would, I have to mm -hmm. come from that hopeful place because I, I couldn't do what I do. You're right, Lisa. And, and, uh, I, I would go back to all of the ways that people have tried, but you know, the, the big megaphones are controlled by, by gatekeepers. I mean, mass media, um, you know, there it is. There was one one media, yeah, one study showed that hardly any Muslims were interviewed about the Muslim ban. You know, something that directly impacts them. So I think that that's one one explanation, one answer to your question. Well, I, I we we need more voices to be heard in this way. And I have to say, we have uh, curated the trying to, been trying to curate this show for probably a year, and it was not easy to find people willing to come on and talk. And I found that odd. I find that odd myself. Yeah. I, I think we, uh, we need to do a better job of, uh, of reaching out and, and having these conversations. Especially in a hospitable environment. Someone saying, come, come, tell your story, share your perspective, make people understand that at the end of the day, that faith is a source of happiness um, being connected is a source of happiness, that the way we overcome these negative forces in the world is by connecting and talking and exploring. And I, I think that leads me to, you know, the discussion about how faith plays such an important role in our well-being. And when faith goes awry, we've got a problem. Yes, I I would love to talk about how faith yeah. um, it, um, impacts our well-being because that is that is my whole life. Uh, I wouldn't be able to do what I do without relying on the resources of my spiritual tradition. It is what gets me through the day. It gets me through difficult situations in my life. It gets me through parenting. Everything comes back to um this this well of wisdom that I'm so grateful to have access to. I think we're going to need to have you back if you'll come back to talk more about this because I'm we're out of time. I'm getting the like get out of here message. <laughs> Will you come <laughs> back and talk more, please? There's so much more to talk about about faith, about women working together, about raising conscious children in this climate. I mean, we could go on for hours. I would love to come back and, and talk about all those things. Thank you, Lisa. Well, we will do that. To learn more about Dahlia Mogahead and her work, please visit www.ispu.org, on Twitter at dmogahead, and on Facebook, Mogahead Consulting. And the book we were speaking about is Who Speaks for Islam? What a Billion Muslims Really Think. And here are a few thoughts before we part. Happiness is not a destination. It cannot be bought, sold, or traded. Happiness will never invite you to the party. It simply comes down to a choice to show up each and every day in the world with passion, purpose, place, and meaning. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. This is Lisa Cypress-Kamen, and my guests today have been Harun Mogul and Dahlia Mogahed, wishing you kind thoughts, kinder words, and the kindest of actions. Until next time, remember, happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. Go out and rock your day. 
Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio with Lisa Cypress-Kamen. Join us each and every Wednesday for a brand new episode of consciously curated talk radio from the heart. Keep harvesting your own happiness anytime from the comfort of wherever you are with hundreds of free downloadable podcasts from our libraries on Tokinet, iTunes, and SoundCloud. In a complicated world seemingly driven by nonstop negative news, Lisa's mission is to celebrate the upside of life and seek the silver lining of our challenges by transforming them into uplifting growth opportunities for all. To learn more about Lisa's global consulting services, please visit HarvestingHappiness.com. Spread more joy by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and following Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen. Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio is produced in collaboration with Toginet Radio, KBUU, RadioMalibu.net, and is available on PRX, the public radio exchange.